In this, uh, in this prayer, commonly called Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying with a transcendent perspective. His mind goes back to the time before the creation of the world. And he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But his mind also goes forward to the time that he will be hanging on the cross. The Eastern Orthodox Church correctly understands that, that the cross of Jesus is, is a place of glory. It's, a, it's the place where Jesus Christ is glorified. And he makes repeated reference to that in his um, discourse to his disciples um, at, uh, there at the Last Supper. And, and in this prayer, this is where you see the glory of Jesus. So he anticipates that, and he, and he asks his Father, in light of what he will accomplish, which he sees here as, as already as good as done, this is what he wants for his people. All of those who will come to faith in him through the power of the cross and through the proclamation of the word. This is what he wants for all of them in all future generations. So this is Jesus as I am that which I am, as truly God, seeing from eternity past to eternity future, his past with his father, his future destiny with his people, and in the light of what is as good as done at the cross, that glorious moment, this is Jesus' prayer for us as his people. I'm going to go back and read the passage. I'd like to read the first five verses of John 17. Then there's an extended section where he prays specifically for his disciples. Um, but verses 1 through 5 do deal with all of us as believers. And then verses 20 through 23, again, deal with all of us as believers. So this is Jesus praying for you. Jesus spoke these words, lifted, these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, referring back to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And what does he pray for us? That they... All may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. For why? Why, do we need, why does he pray for this unity? That the world may believe that you sent me. Now Jesus turns around and unpacks the, um, the means by which this will happen. He lifts the hood off of this prayer request and explains, Father, this is what needs to happen so that the unity may be achieved. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So, so in verses 20 through 23, in this section of Jesus' prayer, first, Jesus prays for unity, and second, Jesus imparts glory as the means through which that prayer will be answered. Jesus prays for unity. Jesus imparts glory. Can I pray again? Lord, uh, please send us your Holy Spirit, we pray. We trust that he will be with us and accomplish uh, this prayer uh, in us um, this afternoon. Amen. So so as we consider this passage, I, I want to encourage you, in light of the fact that you are a priest, Jesus is the great high priest, but he has made you a kingdom of priests. So you are a priest. Um, and the Apostle Paul instructs us in, in, in Ephesians 6 that an essential part of our spiritual warfare is that we be always on the alert with all prayer and petition for all the saints. So in light of that, I want to invite you to, to enter in to, to Jesus's prayer to, to imbibe it and to, and to make it your own. This is, this is our prayer for ourselves and for the church of Christ universal. So as our great high priest prays this, we, we echo um, in our own hearts. So first, Jesus prays for unity. He doesn't pray only for the 12 disciples, but also for all those who will believe through their word, written, spoken, through all generations from, um, from Jesus' first preaching right through the, uh, his, his second coming. And he prays that he prays for unity in three senses. First, he prays for a unity that will reflect the Trinity. Second, he prays for a unity that, that exists in the Trinity. And third, he prays for unity for the purpose that others might believe and might be drawn in. So first, he prays for, for unity that re will reflect the unity that is, that is in the Trinity. He's, he prays that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. The Father and the Son are two distinct persons, along with the Holy Spirit, in one God. In them, there is, there is a distinctness of character. There is something about the Father that makes it eternally appropriate for Him to be the one that sends His Son into the world. There is something about the Son that makes it eternally appropriate for Him to be the one to come join um, human nature to His own divine nature and then lay down His life and shed His blood. There's something eternally appropriate about the Spirit for Him to be the active agent in working in our hearts to uh, ferret out sin and replace it with, with holiness. So, there's an eternal distinction among the persons, along with the unity, and an eternal authority structure. And so it is with the church. 
There's one body, many members, one spirit, and one body. We are all one in Christ Jesus. One body, many members. And each member has distinct qualities. Each member has a distinct spiritual gift, a distinct flavor, a, a distinct tone of light that is coming through that member as a pane in a, in a, in a stained glass window. Um, there, there is the distinctness of, of personality. There is the distinctness of backgrounds. Um, all very distinct but joined in one. And there's also authority structure within the church. There's the, the authority um, of the officers of the church. There is you know, authority of family structures that, that are within the church. All of this is reflective of, of the Trinity. Now, left to ourselves in our flesh, our differences will only ever and always divide us. Uh, either one person will want to impose his will on on all others the way he sees them, or or there will be just um, perpetual uh, clashes. But but in the Trinity there's there's perfect, complete, utter harmony. With the distinctness, with the authority structures, it's only harmony. So it, it just makes sense that this harmony can be replicated in people who are made in God's image. And I would suggest to you, this is the apex of fulfilling the image of God. It's living as one in the church. Because the image of God, it includes his Trinitarian nature. God says, let us make them in our image. So in the image of God, he created him. In the image of God, created he them. One God, three persons are taking counsel together to create plural genders, which leads to at least three individuals, because he says, be fruitful and multiply. God is envisioning a plurality in humanity that will, that will reflect the unity and plurality in the Godhead. But this isn't accomplished perfectly in the human family in sin. It's... It's accomplished really in the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Jesus Christ. That's where it takes place. It's as we, as we trust in Jesus Christ and at the moment of faith receive the Holy Spirit, we are welcomed into the life of God. Eastern Orthodox use the perhaps confusing term of deification. It just means in being enveloped into the life of God being partakers of the divine nature in Peter's language. And this is how Jesus expresses that here. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The Son is in the Father, the Father is in the Son, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, the believer is drawn into that mutually co-inhering life of God. There is a theological term that's used for this. The Greek flavor is perichoresis. The Latin flavor is circumincesso. It's in that, the idea of co-inhering. For all eternity, the members of the Trinity have, have lived in one another, have, have had their abode in one another, uh, have been utterly um, and completely and purely one. There, there's a, a unity of essence here. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, one in essence. 
there's a unity of love. God is love, and that's the case because there's there's distinct members of the Trinity who have lived together in perfect love. So there's a, there's a unity of essence, a unity of love, and a unity of will. Jesus says, I do nothing of myself, but as I only do what I see my Father doing. I, I have no will of my own, but I only will to do His will. So, so there's a unity of essence, love, uh, and mind, purpose, will in God. And at the moment of faith, this life of God is introduced into you. So that the, the Spirit makes, the Spirit brings Jesus into you and with him the Father. This is what Jesus explains earlier uh, as he speaks to his disciples. Um, he, he says, at, they, at that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So at the moment of faith, you begin to participate in the life of God, and, and the triune God takes up his residence in you, just as he does with other believers. And his objective is to refashion you into his own likeness as the triune God. As you live in him as the triune God, your interaction with other believers begins to reflect more and more the unity that has existed eternally in the Trinity. There is a oneness of, of essence. You know, it, there's a, an interesting description that, that's used in the book of Acts. It says, all those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's very arresting language. It's not Hindu. It's not, you know, Eastern mystical. Uh, you know, it's something that they're reaching for but can never get. You know, they try so hard that in their philosophy they lose all individuality. But we're talking about a real oneness of heart and oneness of soul so that the, the language that the Holy Spirit uses to express this is that they were all of one heart and one soul. Because one God had taken up his residence within them. They, they're all partaking together of the divine nature. So they're partaking of the one essence of God. And so their unity in that sense reflects the Trinity. And there's a oneness of love. Um, they're all enjoying the love of God for them. And as they enjoy the love of God for them, trusting that love, they become conduits for that love. So it is that love that begins to be expressed towards others. The, the, the root of the love is, of our love is the love of God, and the fruit of that love is, is love for one another. And there's, of course, a unity of purpose that, that expresses itself more and more and more as the triune God goes to work on us through his spirit, synchronizing our hearts with his and also with one another. There's a unity of purpose in doing his will and in reaching the lost. Because as we, as we see the triune God's unity of purpose, it, it has focus on the salvation of his people 
And so our unity of heart, mind, purpose will be for that same objective. Because our time is limited. And so that's the point that Jesus is driving at. He says that the purpose of this unity is that the world may believe that you sent me. So think about the early church. When the Spirit came and produced this unearthly, heavenly unity, uh, what was the effect? What did people see? They, they saw people that, that, that couldn't stay apart from each other. They, they had to spend time together. It says they, they were daily in the temple praising God, and they were also breaking bread from house to house. They, you just couldn't, couldn't pull them apart. As they were doing that, they were communing with the living God. They were, they were um, taking in His Word, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were partaking of the body and blood of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. They were praying daily, daily prayer meetings there in the early church communing with the living God. And this, this communion was expressed in the fact that they did not regard any of their possessions as their own. They just distributed freely as anyone had need with, without a second thought. What's mine is yours. What's, you, what's yours is mine. Enjoying that, that fellowship of the Godhead expressed in a very physical, tangible, monetary, financial um, way. And, and the effect of this is that people are coming in. There's a unity of purpose. There's a oneness that, that's drawing people in. The Spirit comes and there's a drawing people of pe- people in at Pentecost. But it's very interesting. If you look at Acts 2, it says... They were praising God and having favor with all the people. The people were observing. And they saw blamelessness. And they saw love in these people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I think it's very interesting that just before the Holy Spirit draws our attention to the fact that God is daily bringing in people, it notes that that, that they have a favor with all the people. That people are observing this community. And there's something about the community that draws them in. And the same thing is the case at the end of Acts 6. Or, sorry, in the, in the middle of Acts 6, there, there's, um, there's some dissonance within the community because it appears that some of the, the, the widows in one ethnic section were being overlooked in the distribution of bread. The apostles addressed this There's a new and fresh unity. They select seven men filled with the Holy Spirit. And it seems that at least most of them are from the the neglected ethnic group. And the effect of this renewed unity is that then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Jesus Revolution yet. I haven't. I've watched you know, some, some documentaries. But I think it's undeniable that the Holy Spirit was doing something there uh, in California, in, in Costa Mesa. You, know, you had these, um, these hippies looking for, as they express it in the movie trailer, looking for all the right things in all the wrong places, looking for peace and joy in 
a, a physical chemical high, looking for love in fornication. But, but then they see something in the people of God. They see people coming together, irrespective of race, of gender, of age, of socioeconomic status. And it is the preaching of the word that gets them. But could I say it's just as much the community, the love that's exhibited by the people of God, which of course is an effect of the word, but it's love and truth that, that draws these people in. And I think we, we need the same thing today. You know, people have commented on the similarities between our age and, and the 1970s. I'm sure probably everyone here is more qualified to speak about that than I am. <laughs> <laughs> having lived closer to it or in it. So you can share your thoughts later with me and correct me. Um, but my impression uh, from what I've heard is that, you know, today you, you do have the kids looking for, for chemical highs. You know, nicotine is, is all over the place. You know, it's as ex, you know, ex, accessible as the corner store in candy flavors for, for the kids. And it's as addictive as heroin. Um, You've got this, you, you know, you have, you have heroin, you know, I don't need to explain to you all the things that are available here in Philly. Um, but th th then there's also this, this desire to, to find love, you know, in the seventies, it's fornication. Now it's homosexuality, transgenderism, um, you know, you, you name it, but, but, but there's a craving for community. There really is. Um, they don't know how to shape it, you know, and, and it tends to splinter easily. But Rosaria Butterfield, the woman who had been in the lesbian community in a lesbian relationship, was converted, is now in, I don't remember which denomination, but um, Presbyterian Reformed denomination. Um, you know, she's, she has commented that the homosexuality, homosexual community does put the Church of Christ to shame in this respect. That there's there there's a welcome there. Uh, of course, it's, um, it's it's just a simulation. It's not the real thing. But in, in a sense, as she expresses it, it should come as a challenge to us um, that the world may believe that you sent me. So. In Jesus's um, discourse to his disciples, John 14 through 16, he, he has a pattern of setting forward a truth and then opening the hood and explaining how it works. For example, he talks about the vine and the branches, how you need to abide in me, and, th and that's how you bear fruit. And then he, he pulls up the hood and, he's, and he explains the way that this happens is, is through prayer. As you draw from me and, and, and bring your request to me, I will answer you by producing the fruit of love. He does something similar in John 14. He says, the works that I do, you will do also. He lifts up the hood and explains, this is how this works. You offer your requests to me and I answer you. And this is how the greater works of conversions uh, occur. Something similar is happening here in the prayer. Jesus is praying for unity, and while praying without, uh, without missing a beat, he lifts up the hood and explains how this unity takes place, how it's delivered. 
and it's delivered through his impartation of glory. He says, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I'd invite your help in, in understanding this too. For me, glory is, is not an easy concept to, to try to, uh, to crystallize in my mind. It has to do with, with the, the weightiness of God's own presence, his gravity, his majesty, uh, his um, the, 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 the solemn holiness of who he is. Um, but I think that there's some, some cross-references that we can look at in Jesus' discourse here that help us to understand glory some. And again, I, I welcome your, your, your thoughts on this um, later. Jesus, earlier on in this prayer, says, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about the hour of his death. John 2, his hour had not yet come. Now, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. He's talking about the moment of his death. That is the moment of his glory. And we're accustomed to thinking in, in a linear fashion that th this is his um, passion, and then later comes his glorification. But in the mind of Jesus, I think it, it's clear that the moment of, the, of his death is the moment of his glory. Of course, that's not to negate the fact that he is suffering the equivalent of an eternity in hell in a moment of time. It's not to negate the, the fact that he does ascend to his glory. But, but we at the same time, we need to maintain what Jesus says, that he is glorified at the cross. And the effect of this glorification of the Son is that he may give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So, So I believe that when Jesus is talking about imparting glory to us, he's talking about imparting eternal life through the cross. Through the cross, we have access into the Holy of Holies. Um, it says earlier in John, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus, by the, the tearing of the veil of his own flesh, rips apart everything that separated us from God so that we have access to the glory of God. Remember, God showed Moses his glory and Moses had to hide his face, still came away with his face glowing. But we in the new covenant have something better as we behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the Spirit. So eternal life is not just life of a certain duration, but it's life of a certain quality. And so when the glory is imparted to you, you partake of eternal life now. The moment you believe, you have eternal life. It's a glorious life. It's, it's something that we possess now. And so this eternal life comes to us through a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, John 14, verse 17. 
The Spirit of truth dwells with you and will be in you. And at that day, through Jesus' death and resurrection, at that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So the, so the means through which this, this glory is experienced by us is by the impartation of the Holy Spirit himself. And as we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the Son and we receive the Father. You know, for, for the Old Testament Jew, this is utterly mind-blowing. One man once a year goes into the Holy of Holies. And now you hear that you're the temple. I'm the, I am the temple. And he comes to take up residence in me. That's glory. Then further back, moving on back to the passage that Paul read. Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. 13 verse 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Again, referring to his death. And God is glorified in him. And then, as, an, as a result of this, as an effect of this, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So I would, I would submit to you that another facet of this glory, there's the facet of eternal life. There's the facet of the glory be imparted through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Another facet of this glory that is given to us is that when, when this glory is received by you, you receive in your soul the disposition and the attitude of Jesus Christ at the moment of his death. The command is love one another as I have loved you. This only happens through the indwelling spirit because we have eternal life pulsing in our, in our veins. But, but by virtue of these things, the disposition and attitude of Jesus on the cross becomes ours. The moment of salvation is really ours. Through the course of sanctification, it becomes increasingly ours. And... I think that if you look at Psalm 133, you see these three elements of glory uh, played out in something of a dance. How, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Philippians 2, Colossians 3 make very clear there's no, there's no unity without humility and love. The humility and love showed at the cross. So how, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, when they have the, the disposition of Christ. So there's unity, there's, there's, there's love, and then it is like the, the, the precious oil. What's that an image of? That's the Holy Spirit. The anointing oil coming from Aaron's head onto his beard. It's like the dew that comes down on Hermon. Another image of the Holy Spirit. Water coming down. That's the Holy Spirit. And because at, at Mount Hermon, the Lord promised the blessing, life forever. So, as glory is imparted, you receive the disposition of Jesus bringing unity, love. You receive the person of the Holy Spirit and you experience this, this quality of life that's described as eternal life here and now. So this is how this oneness is achieved as the triune God inhabits us with his, with his own glory. This glory is given to us that we may be one just as Jesus says we are one, the Father and the Son. He says, I in them 
and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. So Jesus says, I will be in these believers by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit, and you, Father, will be in me, and therefore in the believers as well, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what, they'll bring, what will bring them into perfection as one. And I, and I think that Jesus is taught, there, there is something of a process here. There, there's a being made perfect into one. In God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is, my daughter used an expression that her teacher used the other, other day, the, a perichoretic dance of the Trinity. The, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are, um, they're always interacting with each other, always have been uh, before all ages. But we see that played out in the, in the history of redemption. What is it that characterizes their interaction? Because that's our cue for what should characterize our interaction as we're being made perfect. We're, we're not yet experiencing that perfect unity, right? All I have to do is think a couple moments ago to the thoughts that went through my head to know we're not there yet. But, but as we tune in to how these persons of the Trinity have interacted, we, we get a cue as to how we, how we are to be perfected in unity. What is it that characterized their interaction? There is a deference to one another within the Trinity. There is a humility within the Trinity. Jesus fully surrenders to his Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. The Father, when Jesus ascends to, to his throne gives all authority to the Son. And the Holy Spirit, in deference to the will of the Father and the Son, comes down to inhabit us. So there's, there's a deference to one another that I think is, is appropriate. There may be a better term, but I don't, I don't think that humility is inappropriate. Meekness, deference, yieldedness there is also in the trinity and i'd appreciate any more thoughts about this i think you know we're just scratching the surface here but there there is also in the trinity love to the point of pain you know paul says that love suffers long that's it suffers long and is kind. That's the essence of love. And then he says a bunch of things that love is not. Um, but it bears all things and endures all things. So there is there's a, a commitment and endurance to the point of pain. You know, we could I think we could even say infinite pain. And we we see this, of course, in Jesus at the cross. There's infinite pain. As for us, but it's also out of love and, and reverence for his Father and for the Holy Spirit, who is the one who impelled him to the cross. There's, there's pain in the Father, 
God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Every other time in Scripture where an only begotten child is mentioned, it, almost every time it's talking about the poignancy of what it means to lose an only child. That's pain. The father looking down at his son. And I would suggest also there is the pain of the Holy Spirit as he lives in us to, comp to, to bring to fruition what Christ has accomplished on the cross. We grieve him. That's pain. But it's for the sake of love. He dwells in us in the closest possible relationship, enduring pain to bring us to perfection. And so, what this calls for is the same attitude within us. A deference to one another. A forbearance with one another. A willing to endure to the point of pain. While enduring being patient with, with others. It calls for a humility, a meekness. And I think these things are expressed very well in two passages uh, of Paul. I think I just mentioned them a moment ago. In Philippians and in Colossians. Philippians 2. Paul says, fulfill my joy and the joy of Jesus Christ, by the way, because he's the one that's praying for unity in John 17. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. So Paul expresses in four different ways um, what Jesus has already expressed. He, he earnestly longs for, for a unity of mind, love, fellowship, now, how does that happen? It happens through deference, meekness, humility, being willing to yield to others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In lowly, lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't grasp for equality with God, though it was his, he emptied himself by the addition of humanity. That wasn't low enough. He does it so he doesn't clutch at the position of, of Godhead. He, so he lowers himself to become a man. That's not low enough. So he becomes a slave. That's not low enough. So he goes to the lowest point imaginable. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's not low enough. So he goes to the, to the uttermost depths of hell. For the sins of his people. And, and the apostle says, let this mind be in you. You know, it's, it struck me, you know, we talk about having, you know, a Christian mind and a Christian worldview, wanting our minds to be conformed to, to Christ. I mean, my tendency has been to conceive of that in intellectual terms, a, a, a mind that's furnished with with the, um, with the data of Christianity. I think Paul sees it as a certain attitude. An attitude of slavery to my fellow brothers and sisters. There's a man at my church, I mentioned this to my wife recently. Um, he's, uh, he's of Indian descent. And something that I've, I've noticed about him is it's, it's remarkable. And I've, I've even met, found myself imitating him or trying to. Because it's, it's so arresting. Now, this is a man who has served as an elder in the church. Thank you. Thank you. He has served as an elder in the church. 
But when, but when he and I will participate in things, you know, I, I haven't held ordained office. He will, he will behave as if, as if he's my, as, as if he's my servant. Now it's not strange or, um, or weird, but he, he just has an attitude of, well, what can I do to help? You know, can, can I, can I do something here? Um, and, and he, and he kind of takes this position of, of being under me, although that, that's, not the case at all. Um, but, but I think it's beautiful, not just because it's me that he's, that he's serving, although maybe that has something to do with it, but it's, it's beautiful because it's like Jesus. Um, that's uh, that servant attitude. Uh, Colossians also says something to the same effect. Colossians 3 verse 12 as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That's, that echoes Jesus in our passage. That they all may be made perfect in one. The bond of perfection. How is the bond of perfection accomplished? It's by us dying to ourselves. The disposition of Jesus. And again, Jesus Jesus brings brings things full circle by saying that this glory is imparted to us to bring us to perfection, not only individually, as we have, we have in view in 2 Corinthians 3, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold in the Scriptures um, the glory of the Lord, but also corporately as we take on the disposition of Jesus and, and fulfill His new commandment to love one another with the love that He had for us as He was dying. As that, as that is, um, comes to fruition in us, we will find ourselves increasingly one. And the effect is that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There was a missionary in China, a group of 400 or so Chinese soldiers, not sure if soldiers is the word, bandits, warriors, um, thugs. They're in a a warring band and they came to him asking about his God because they had become worshipers of this God. The story came out that they had gone to, to attack a Christian mission. A woman ran out of this, of the mission compound and said, take me instead. Kill me instead. Not sure if I remember the story perfectly, but I don't know that she survived. I don't know that anybody else did. But her plea, begging, just take me instead, that rang true to them. And they became worshipers of that God, whoever it was, who impelled her to do that. that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So, as we bring things full circle, 
do you own this prayer? You know, we are priests. I'd encourage you, as I've exhorted myself, to consider those people or groups whom, you, whom it is most difficult for you to envision unity, harmony with. Christians, but those for whom, due to any number of reasons, it can be very difficult to, to envision unity with. And I encourage you to pray. Allow the Holy Spirit to, to move you to, to pray um, for, for unity um, and for likeness to, to Christ himself as you, as you pray. Because, because it's, I think it's as we enter into this prayer of Jesus that he'll also have us enter into his dying you know, it's his, it's his dying which makes us all one, but it's also our dying to ourselves that brings that unity more and more and more to fruition. So, um, I'll leave you with that. And... Shall I hand the podium over to Mark?